week, Malincrote files for Chapter 11. Movie theaters warn on cash and liquidity. Extraction oil and gas wins in a closely watched midstream decision. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Rio Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. And I'm James Holloway in Houston. Later, Karen Lung, Ian Howen, and Jessica Steinhagen will join us to review Chapter 11 filings in the third quarter. It's Sunday, October 18th. Malincrot, the Dublin-based generic drug manufacturer, filed for Chapter 11 after entering into a restructuring support agreement with holders of approximately 84% of guaranteed unsecured notes and certain governmental opioid plaintiffs, including 50 states and territories and the Court-Appointed Plaintiffs Executive Committee, or PEC, in the Federal Multidistrict Litigation Proceeding, or MDL. Chief Transformation Officer Stephen Welch said that although the debtors believe they have meritorious defense to these claims, they must now seek bankruptcy protection to address runaway costs, eliminate the uncertainty associated to these cases, and prevent the proverbial race to the courthouse that would come at the expense of all the debtor stakeholders. The company said in a press release, the RSA, quote, provides for an amended proposed opioid claim settlement and a financial restructuring that would reduce the company's debt by approximately $1.3 billion, resolve opioid-related claims against the company-related entities, and resolve various Actar jail-related matters, including the CMS Medicaid rebate dispute and Associated False Claims Act lawsuit and an FCA lawsuit relating to Actar's previous owners' inter- interactions with an independent charitable foundation. The RSA contemplates the following treatment of claims against in- and interest in the debtors. All allowed first lien credit agreement claims, first lien note claims, and second lien note claims would be reinstated at existing rates and maturities. Holders of allowed guaranteed unsecured notes claims would receive their pro rata share of $375 million in new seven-year second lien notes plus 100% of common equity interest, ordinary shares in the reorganized debtor, Malincrop PLC, subject to dilution by warrants. Holders of the non-guaranteed four and three quarters unsecured notes would not receive any distribution. Opioid plaintiffs would share $1.6 billion in payments over seven years, plus warrants to purchase just under 20% of reorganized equity. States and the federal government holding approximately $650 million in ACTHAR rebate claims would share $260 million in payments over seven years, plus 100% rebates on ACTHAR sales. Trade creditors and holders of allowed general unsecured claims would share $150 million in cash, and equity holders would receive no recovery. The RSA term sheet indicates that the case will be financed using existing cash and use of cash collateral on terms and conditions subject to reasonable consent of the required supporting unsecured note holders and the government plaintiff ad hoc committee. The current consolidated cash balance of the Chapter 11 filing earnings is more than $650 million. Together with cash generated from ongoing operations, Malincrot says this is expected to provide ample liquidity to support continued operations during the court-supervised process. At the debtor's first day hearing, Scott Greenberg of Gibson Dunn, counsel for the ad hoc group of first lien term lenders, stressed to the judge that although the group has agreed to the use of its cash collateral for now, the first lien lenders are not parties to the debtor's restructuring support agreement and intend to oppose reinstatement of their claims as currently contemplated by the RSA. And as COVID cases continue to increase worldwide, AMC Entertainment said that it expects its existing cash resources to be largely depleted by the end of 19 of 2020 or early 2021. Absent significant increases in attendance at its theaters, some current levels are incremental sources of liquidity given the reduced movie slate for the fourth quarter. 
and that after that time, the company will require material additional sources of liquidity. This is from an AK filing. As of June 30th, AMC had borrowed all available mounts under its $225 million revolver due 2024 and a British pound $100 million Odeon revolver due 2022. The company had around $510 million of cash as of August 31st, with the cash burn in July and August averaging about $115 million. Additional sources of liquidity could include additional debt and equity financing, further renegotiations with landlords, and potential asset sales seeking joint ventures or minority investments, and this is according to the 8K. Reorg later learned that AMC is also considering a potential Chapter 11 filing, according to sources. The company is working with Wild Gottschall as legal advisor, sources said, and Molis as financial. And across the pond, Cineworld, the UK cinema chain that owns the US brand Regal, was sued in UK retail by retail landlord AEW for about $400,000 in outstanding rent on one of its cinema complexes in Bristol, according to the court. AEW said that the, that the company, Cinemark, failed to make quarterly payments of £154,000, which fell due on March 25th and June 24th. The company recently closed all of its 100, all 102 of its theaters in the UK, and all 536 Regal theaters in the US, which the company initially closed following government guidance on COVID. In its defense, the Cinema Group argued that the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations 2020 made operating these cinemas illegal. Accordingly, the company said from March it had derived no income from the premises or from any of its other premises. In a set of closely watched decisions that resulted in a victory for extraction oil and gas and a potential blow to midstream companies more generally, Judge Christopher Sanchi ruled Wednesday that the Denver-based EMPs agreements with three sets of midstream gathering agreement counterparties did not create covenants running with the land under Colorado law. The bankruptcy court granted the debtors' request for summary judgment on their claims for declaratory judgments that the debtors' contracts with Platte River Midstream, Grand Mesa Pipeline, and Elevation Midstream did not contain covenants running with the land and denied one of the defendants' competing cross-motions for summary judgment. Judge Sanchi wrote that under Colorado law, to create a covenant running with the land, the parties must intend to create a covenant running with the land, and the covenant must touch and concern the land with which it runs. In addition, the judge states, there must also be privity of estate between the original covenanting parties at the time of the covenant's creation. The court observes that failure to satisfy any one of the elements means that, as a matter of law, a covenant cannot run with the land. Concluding that the agreements at issue and the disputes do not meet this standard, the ruling states that the central issue before the court is whether the dedicated and committed interests in the respective agreements touch and concern the land before concluding that they do not. The court carves out the drilling commitment and the elevation commercial agreements from this aspect of the touch and concern ruling, saying that it is undisputed by the parties that the drilling commitments do touch and concern the land. On the island of Puerto Rico, on Wednesday, newly appointed PROMESA Oversight Board member Justin Peterson told Reorg in an interview that he wants to be a catalyst to execute deals with creditors in support of President Donald Trump's efforts to bring jobs, investment, and development to Puerto Rico. Peterson also expressed concern about the growth in the infrastructure around the Oversight Board, including both professional consulting contracts and staff, and pledged to do whatever I can to expedite the board going away. 
Peterson insisted that Puerto Rico will not be able to realize its full potential and increase its attractiveness for investors until the Oversight Board complies with its responsibilities under PROMESA. On Tuesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Authority, National and AMBAC lodged objections to the PSA creditor's motion urging the Title III Court to impose case deadlines for the PROMESA Oversight Board to put forth and prosecute a plan of adjustment. The objection opposes the relief on numerous grounds, including broadly that there are practical risks to proceeding on the PSA creditor's requested timeline. The filing suggests that the PSA creditor's proposed schedule could result in termination of the Title III cases, leading to piecemeal and unrelenting litigation and chaos. Top red stories this week were Diamond Sports term lenders organized with Gibson Dunn amid value leakage risk. Ad hoc term lender group files New York State action seeking to void board riders financing transactions, nullify credit agreement amendments. Tapstone Energy selected a stalking horse bidder for Chesapeake Energy's Midcon assets. And what do you know? Here I am again. Fall is upon us. Turned on the heat last night for the first time this year. The brutal Texas winter draws nigh. Something else that draws nigh is, yes, corporate earnings season. Those begin this week. Sometimes I think I'm still recovering from the last one, but more of that in a minute. This week on Monday, October 19th, we have an omnibus in Briggs and Stratton, one of whose engine plants located in my hometown of Statesboro, Georgia, where it employed a number of my friends and relatives. It's also hearing in Speedcast and a cash management hearing in Noble. Tuesday, October 20th, there's a lot of activity on the hearing front, so please see our weekly Ford, which is released early every Monday morning for all the details. Some highlights include omnibus and summary judgment hearings in Highland Capital, cash collateral pretrial conference in Hertz, a status conference in Diamond Offshore, and earnings there here with Albertsons, which among its other grocery holdings includes a Houston chain called Randall's, which is well known for its great fried chicken. It's almost like my grandma used to make there in Georgia. Anyways, on to Wednesday, October 21st. It's a moment we've all been waiting for. And no, I don't mean the second day hearing in Garrett Motion, which is also today, or the omnibus hearing in Nine West. Tesla reports its third quarter earnings. There's also a call, 5.30 p.m. ET. Just imagine if you could trade it on Robinhood. And then came Thursday, October 22nd. Hearings in Chesapeake, Taylor and Centric, Fairway, Dean Foods, and Diamond Offshore. There's also earnings from American Airlines before the opened, and Mattel is reporting after the close. Friday, October 23rd, on the Irving's front, it's Cleveland Cliffs with its always interesting calls, featuring the insights of CEO Lorenzo Goncalves. There's also the confirmation hearing for Asina and an omnibus hearing in Frontier. And that's all from me. Thanks for being here. And now, Mark, back to you. And now, here's Karen with Reorg's first day team, Jessica Nguyen. Hello, this is Karen Lung from the Reorg America's Core Credit Legal Analyst team. And I'm talking today with the team at Reorg First Day, Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland. First Day monitors Chapter 11 filings across the country with more than $10 million in liabilities and tracks trends in filings through the First Day database. Jessica and Ian are going to give us a bird's eye view today of Chapter 11 filing activity in the third quarter of 2020. Ian, on your and Jessica's last quarterly review on the podcast, you told us about a very active second quarter. How did the third quarter begin in terms of Chapter 11 filings? After a very busy June that closed out with 51 Chapter 11 cases and was the busiest month 
the busiest month for Chapter 11 cases on first day record at the time. July eclipsed June with 55 cases for the month and currently holds the first day record for total filings in a month. August and September were calmer, falling to 42 cases in August and 36 cases in September. In total, the quarter closed out with 133 cases as the second busiest quarter in first day history behind 2020's second quarter. For context, the quarterly average since 2016's first quarter is 97 cases per quarter. While filings seem to taper off at the end of Q3, it's worth noting that October is looking much busier than August and September, racking up roughly 20 cases in the first 12 days. Further, Q3 and Q4 have historically been um, much lower in terms of filing level than the first and second quarters of the year, with the two first quarters averaging 99 and 98 cases per quarter, respectively, and quarters three and four averaging 87 and 83, respectively, over the 2016 to 2019 period. And were there any changes to the busiest industries when you were looking at Q2 and Q3? Sure. So from the first quarter to the second quarter, energy and consumer discretionary filings each roughly doubled. In the third quarter, consumer discretionary files kept the pace with Q2, while energy filings picked up even further after having already established unprecedented levels in Q2. In total, 34 energy companies filed in the third quarter, up 30% from the second quarter and standing alone as the first day record for energy filings in a single quarter. So we know from your podcast on the second quarter that large cases with respect to debt increased significantly from Q1 to Q2. What happened to those large cases in the third quarter? So after an incendiary second quarter for Chapter 11s with more than a billion in debt, notching a total of 28 to eclipse the second quarter of 2016 as the prior record holder with 15, the third quarter added another 16 Chapter 11 with more than a billion dollars in debt, half of which came from the energy sector. While 16 represents a roughly 40% drop from Q2's 28 cases, it still represents the second busiest quarter in first day history for Chapter 11s involving more than a billion dollars in liabilities. The quarter started out quick with a billion dollar filing from NPC International, which franchises Pizza Hut and Wendy's restaurants on July 1st. Other than NPC, what have you... Uh, seen in terms of restaurant chain filings? Well, NPC was the 13th restaurant chain Chapter 11 filing of 2020, which was three cases above the busiest complete year for restaurant filings on first day record. But NPC was only the second restaurant company Chapter 11 filing involving more than $1 billion in debt since at least 2016, when the only other billion dollar restaurant filing was Chuck E. Cheese. Through the end of the third quarter, there were filings from eight additional restaurant chain operators, including California. California Pizza Kitchen, bringing the total of restaurant filings in 2020 through the end of the third quarter to 22. How about retail? How did that fare this past quarter? It was busy again. Consumer discretionary cases approached 100 cases through the end of the third quarter. Before that, the prior record holder for consumer discretionary cases in a single year was 2019, and that year reaching 83 cases. The third quarter account did for 97 consumer discretionary cases for the year, of which approximately 35 filed in Q3. Of these cases, 15 were retailers compared with 5 in Q1 and 12 in Q2. Of the third quarter's 15 retail chain bankruptcies, 10 filed in July, which included Lucky Brand Dungarees, Brooks Brothers, and a center retail group. July 2020 stands alone as the single busiest month for retail chain Chapter 11 filings in first day history. 
And in one week alone, at the beginning of July, six brick-and-mortar retail chains filed, which included denim companies Lucky Brand Dungarees and G-Star Raw Retail, plus Brooks Brothers, the Fig and Olive restaurant chain, Hope Kitchenware retailer Sirolette Table, and apparel and house goods retailer Muji USA. That made seven of these filers in just the first 10 days of July. May 15 had a total of 15 consumer discretionary bankruptcies, if you want to compare the two months. July's retailers all said that while COVID-19-related disruptions ultimately caused the bankruptcy filings, there were also pre-existing market headwinds. These brick-and-mortar filers face supply-side and demand-side challenges in the businesses, as well as industry-wide challenges. The retailers continued to file into August, including Lord & Taylor and men's warehouse parent Taylor Brands, Steinmart, and in September with the filing from Century 21 department stores. Can you say more about some of the reasons that these Chapter 11 debtors cited as reasons for the bankruptcy filings? Sure, I can take that one. So, Sir La Table lamented declining rates of home-prepared meals and shifts in consumer preferences in favor of online-only stores. Brooks Brothers cited falling revenue in recent years due to increased competition from online retailers and overall declines in the specialty retail industry. Brooks Brothers also faces unique issues related to the pandemic, with the first day declaration pinning a steep drop in revenue on the increase of office employees working remotely, resulting in depressed demand for professional attire. In addition, um, in addition to consumer purchases migrating to e-commerce, Lucky Brand noted an adverse shift in demand away from apparel to technology and personal experiences. G-Star also faced its own unique storm with, the, with respect to COVID-19, with many of its stores subjected to looting during a period of civil unrest in late May and in early June. Fig and Olive based much of its non-pandemic pandemic-related stress on salmonella outbreak that impacted certain of its stores, sparking negative press and what they refer to as a series of frivolous losses. And beyond retail, how did the consumer discretionary sector break down this past quarter? I'm sure I can answer that one, Karen. Uh, retail and store and restaurant operators are definitely taking the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic driven brick-and-mortar retail bankruptcies, but after that, there were also filings from leisure-type companies. We saw gym operators, along with other leisure facility operators, such as golf courses and other recreational facilities, making up about the same portion of 2020's brick-and-mortar Chapter 11s as grocery and supermarket chains. The third quarter had the filing of Town Sport, sorry about that, um, which was the third fitness center chain operator that filed because of the pandemic. Town Sports runs gyms under the New York, Boston, Washington, and Philadelphia sports clubs banners, and it blamed the usual problems of the shutdown orders for its filing. Like some of the other bankrupt gyms, Town Sports has seen an interest in the business, entering bankruptcy with proposals from two separate groups of pre-petition lenders, with one of them working with third-party tacit capital. Gold Gym also filed this, well, it was in the second quarter in May, but it ended up with a 100% plan after Gold sold its assets for $100 million to German fitness company RSG. The other big fitness club bankruptcy was 24-Hour Fitness, which filed in June, and that one is looking to restructure. Since the pandemic has taken hold, there's only been one supermarket chain that filed. The parent of the high-end Balducci's and King Supermarkets was the only supermarket filer, and it came in the third quarter. Interestingly, though, the debtor said that its liquidity improved during the pandemic, but that this liquidity was only temporary, and they need a permanent solution. In general, the supermarket blamed the usual complaints of prior supermarket filers of the highly competitive nature of the retail food industry, 
um, in this case in the New York and Washington metro areas, from supermarkets and also rapidly intensifying competition from Amazon and Target. Balducci's has also been hurt by local online grocers like Fresh Direct and Meat Kill Kit businesses such as Blue Apron and HelloFresh. The company has had a successful auction process so far that has garnered a bid of $96.4 million from Acme Supermarkets, a big increase from the lender's $75 million stocking horse bid. Let's move on to the quarter's other very lively sector, energy. Uh, what were the new developments in the oil and gas landscape, Ian, and what, uh, what role did coal play in the sector's filings in Q3? So, like retail, energy struggles predated the pandemic, but were exacerbated by it. Q3 saw the greatest number of energy filings in a single quarter in first day history, with a new case, with a new energy filing every two and a half days on average. Only two of these companies were coal producers. The third quarter's oil and gas filers included eight with liabilities over one billion, all of which were filed in Texas's Southern District and were all filed as either pre-negotiated or pre-packaged Chapter 11 cases. Of these larger cases, almost all of them were exploration and production companies, while when looking at cases with liabilities below the $1 billion threshold, approximately 40% were filed by services providers for the oil and gas industry. To point out some of the examples by company, Lone Star Resources, which was one of the third quarter's last oil and gas company filers, blamed the bankruptcy filing on significant revenue, cash flow, and liquidity challenges beginning in 2018 due to falling commodity prices. Crude oil prices have been extremely volatile since 2019, the debtors add in the case, and decreased even more steeply in early 2020, at times reaching near or at the lowest prices ever recorded in the United States, Lone Star said in its filings. Highcrush, a frac sand supplier for the hydraulic fracturing industry that filed early on in the, in the third quarter, pinned its troubles on depressed demand for northern white frac sand due to decreased production levels from EMP companies. These factors have led to increased competitive pressures on pricing for the, debtor, for the debtor's northern white frac sand and the decision of EMP companies who are facing their own production troubles to favor cheaper forms of frac sand. And what uh, were there other industries that stuck out to you? So there were a couple. There were at least four cannabis industry filings this year, two of which filed in the third quarter. Tiwanot Life Sciences, which develops cannabinoid products for the pharmaceutical and consumer markets, filed in the third quarter, along with Kettner Investments, which is a long-term equity investor in companies involved in the legal hemp industry. Kettner pointed to a slump in cannabis-related stocks. Kettner also said that its portfolio companies had an 80% to 90% decline after the peak of the stock bubble for cannabis and cannabis-related businesses in early 2019. In addition, there were two more Catholic diocese entities that filed, during, that filed Chapter 11 during the quarter to address abuse claims. Year to date, seven organizations have filed Chapter 11 to address abuse claims, including six Catholic church entities and Boy Scouts of America. Well, thank you so much, Jessica and Ian, for joining us today to give us an overview of the Chapter 11 filing activity in Q3 and sharing your insights with us. And thanks, folks, once again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all of our podcasts on the Reorg Media Site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And as always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe.